Hello and welcome to the Bang to Rights podcast. My name's Pete Murray. I'm a lecturer in multimedia journalism here at MMU. I'm joined by my colleagues Dave Porter. Hi, Dave. Hi, Pete. And Jeremy Craddock. Hi, Jez. Hi, Pete. So this is episode two of, of our podcast, of a series. Um, we'll be, we're already actually deviating a wee bit from, from our defined beat of the court's media law regulation. We're going to have a look this week at a debate commissioned by the government's media, culture and sport department into the future of journalism in the UK. The inquiry chaired by Dame Frances Cairncross and public submissions to her review are due to close just about as we're recording this episode. So we thought today was a good time to have a look at the issues while we're while while it's in the news really. Mm. But before we get to any of that, Dave, Jez, what have you been reading, watching, hearing, nosing in about this week? Um Dave, anything particularly caught your eye? Uh, well, not this week, but a few weeks back, uh, and I'd recommend it to all students, was, was a great series, in fact, it, probably over summer, on the Crown Prosecution Service. Yes, um, yeah, indeed. I, I can't remember the title, uh, in fact, the channel, but it was I, a real... I think it's called The Prosecutors. Yeah, The not? Prosecutors, yeah. And, uh, and I will recommend it to students, and it's a great look, uh, an insight into, you know, the decisions they take, why they take them, the relationship with the police, and it follows a case for each week, and um, you know how they how they procure barristers, um, how the cases unfold, why sometimes they collapse. Mm-hmm. Um, interestingly, you know um, they take the viewpoint of the victims. So I heartily recommend anybody you know catch up to go and look at the prosecutors. Yeah, definitely, definitely. It's been it was fascinating for me yes. um, just to see a lot of those and and the the decisions, particularly about why they would decide not to proceed with a case. Yes. Quite often, very very difficult. Difficult for the for the families of the families of the victims to handle those yeah. decisions. I know, yeah, that's right. Often the focus of uh, you know quite fierce criticism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jez, anything for for you? Yeah, well, Dave mentioned that. It's just reminded me of a program I, I want to watch but I haven't seen yet. But so I'd be interested to know if any either of you have seen it. But the the new drama, the press uh, uh, that was on BBC yes, yeah. uh, by the writer of Doctor Foster, I believe. But it's about yeah. two rival newspapers in a city. Mm. Yep. And their sort of competition, but I think it also portrays the press. You know, the the current state of uh, certainly, you know, print uh, media, uh, the pressures on on reporters to fulfil print and online content, and those kind of pressures. So, I'd be quite interested to see how that's been portrayed because I'm not mm. too sure what kind of research has gone into the. Uh, yeah, well, I, I saw the first. I saw the first episode. I haven't seen the second episode mm, yet, no. but the first episode. Really, really interesting. It began with a death knock story. Uh, yes. a, a raw reporter having to go and, and uh, get a quote from from a bereaved father. And I thought that was that was really, really well done, actually. Because mm. they actually, yeah, we don't we don't tend to do death knocks no. anymore. No, no. Which, but it's yeah, I know what you're saying. But right? it's one of the you know historically we all know it's been one of the one of the most difficult jobs that of anyone course. can do. Yeah. It's, it's a right rite of passage, wasn't it? As yeah, a, as a new mm. reporter. So, so it. it's interesting also the way the editor <laughs> handles that. He's a he's a bit of a beast. Um, <laughs> but I won't I won't yeah. issue any further spoilers for that. Right. But yeah, definitely worth watching. And yes. it's a, you know the competition between the tabloid and the, and the the broadsheet, if you like, you know that. So mm. that's all in there, and the way they, yeah. yeah, a lot of undercover stuff as well. So yeah, it's definitely a good watch. It's worthwhile, yeah. um, and certainly worthwhile for new students if they want to get a flavour. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's not fact. It, uh, it is a fiction. No, no. It's a TV yeah. drama, but it does give you a kind of entertaining view in on, on yeah. what goes on in yeah. some of these newsrooms. Yes, good. Yeah. Um, I've been looking at uh, a kind of more boring side of things, really. I've been looking at a ruling from the press regulator, Ipso, over the Daily Telegraph's 
2016 undercover investigation mm. uh, into the short-lived England manager Sam Sam Allardyce. He he lost his complaint that the Telegraph broke their their rules by sending an undercover reporter to propose a business deal and discuss rules on third-party ownership of footballers. Um, he lost Allardyce lost his job within days of of. Uh, of that as a result of this thing. Um, one of the newspaper's reporters posed as a representative of a fake sports management agency and secretly recorded their conversations. Ipso ruled that the undercover recording was justified as what the regulator described as a productive and proportionate way to investigate these types of commercial relationships. The former England managers responded by criticising the Football Association for jumping the gun by deciding to sack him within days of the first Telegraph articles appearing. In a statement, he had this to say. Had the FA stuck to their word and waited to see the Telegraph's evidence, as they originally told me they would, they would have seen the allegations made against me were false. It was, of course, the allegations about third-party ownership that the FA stated were the reasons for my leaving. It was clear that those I was dealing with were more concerned with their own image than getting to the truth of what had occurred. I will consider my position in this regard with my lawyers, but I hope Martin Glenn and Greg Clark reflect on the lack of leadership that they showed. Allardyce was sacked as England manager just two months into the job as a result of the Telegraph reports. Now, Ipso ruled in favour of the Telegraph on 22 of the 25 occasions, but upheld three of Allardyce's complaints, with the regulator noting that three major inaccuracies were present. One of those inaccuracies relates to Allardyce's comments about third-party ownership, which the former Everton boss believes is the reason he was sacked by the FA. Ipsos' report called for corrections to state that Allardyce did not suggest a model where third parties could benefit from transfer fees, did not brief undercover reporters on breaking rules, and did not enter into negotiations to provide guidance on circumventing third-party rules. Dave, I know you've been looking at this as well, so yes. what do you make of it? I think it's very interesting, you know, almost in a way, since the News of the World has disappeared, it's almost like a classic News of the World uh, scoop, isn't it, this, really? investigative mm -hmm. journalism um the the uh, telegraph has got a some form on this actually uh in terms of being uh, having the knuckles wrapped by ipso by placing uh, reporters in the constituency offices of uh vince cable yes. what was seen to be uh unwarranted and unjustified and i think it's worth pointing out to uh any students listening that there are very clear rules about you know, investigative reporting, uh, undercover rather, um, you know, can you um, establish at the start of the investigation, do you have enough um, evidence, prima facie evidence? Yeah, it, it can't just be know. a fishing trip. Yeah, to, it can't be a fishing trip, yeah. which in fact was what Ipsos said of, of the PCC rather at the time, of the Telegraph and Lib Dems. Yeah. Um, it seems to be like they had enough information here. It seems pretty mm. prima facie. Um, I mean, at the time, Allardyce said it was a case of entrapment, didn't he? he he's not well, pursued that, but yeah. No, I, 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 what might be interesting is, as you said, Pete, you know, he, he lost his job. I wonder if there might be any uh, resulting, uh, you know, civil action. Well, that's uh, interesting that he, yeah, that he's 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 attacking um, the FA in his mm. statement rather than mm. the Telegraph or, yeah. or Ipso. Yeah, so I mean, I also um, think it, it does point to the fact that if you're going to do this under kind of uh, kind of undercover reporting, uh, you've got to be careful about how you edit and how you portray and selective use of facts because it seems to me um this was a very this is very murky waters we know about foot, the world of football uh, is awash with money and contracts and people doing deals i'm not suggesting our dice was did anything illegal but certainly um 
it would be very easy to edit it in such a way um, represented one side uh, and, and who knows in this case what happened here but I think it's a solitary warning actually for, for all publishers yeah Jez do you have much sympathy with Sam Allardyce that he was that he says he was entrapped into this by the Telegraph I, I, I think it was a classic piece of solid investigative journalism mm -hmm. really you know this, the sort of journalism that you don't see that much of these days just because papers or news organisations don't have the resources to put into it um, and because of the risks that Dave's outlined as well. Yeah. Um, I mean, the Telegraph themselves, they're, they're undercover, they're, their investigative unit rather said that they did have prima facie evidence mm. that, that Allardyce was, was up to something. Um, but the question really then becomes, was it illegal activity or was he mm. just yeah. making a lot of money for himself? Yes, Quite. yeah. 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 So um, we we may come back to that depending on mm. whether whether he does um, have a go at the FA or well, whether his lawyers have a go yeah. at the FA. So we'll wait and see. Keep an um, eye on this one. Yep, yeah, yeah. But next up on Bank to Rights um, this week, one of the reasons that I was keen to have a look at that Cairn Cross inquiry that, that I mentioned at the the outset was actually precisely because there's not really been that much public debate about about it. We we have seen one potentially important intervention though, which has caught the attention of a lot of news outlets, and that came from the Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn. Mm. When he spoke at the Edinburgh Television Festival last month uh, in August about a levy on the internet giants such as Google and Facebook to help fund public service journalism. Now, that's the policy nugget, I guess, which attracted most attention, but the, it was an, a one-hour speech and, mm. and the, there was a lot more in there. For example, he talked about cutting tax on smaller investigative journalist operations by turning them into charities. We should look, I believe, at granting charitable status for some local investigative and public interest journalism. That status would help pioneering not-for-profit organisations like the Bureau of Investigative Journalism to fund their vital work through tax exemptions, grants and donations. Such a change would help support groundbreaking investigations like the Bureau's into how many homeless people are dying on our streets. And at the end of that 45-minute lecture, the Labour leader also took part in a Q&A with the festival audience. It was during that session that he addressed what he said was a problem with the ownership of scores of local newspapers around the country by a small monopoly of large owners. The majority of our national titles are owned by a small number of companies and a huge majority of local press are actually not local at all. They're owned by very big corporations elsewhere. You look at some local papers, are uh, absolutely brilliant, and they tend to be, not exclusively, but tend to be the remaining uh, genuinely local ones. Other ones, uh, journalists are paid very little, on, often on short-term contracts, um, find it hard to develop a commitment to the area they're in, and as a result, they either move on or replaced by somebody else, and the paper becomes simply a vehicle for local advertising and regurgitating press releases that have been sent to them by local businesses and, and councils and so on. And they don't become very exciting as papers as a result of that. Indeed, um, as one who inveterately reads local newspapers all over the country, you find sometimes that the distant editorial office from the community where the paper should be uh, produced has actually got its areas mixed up 
so they have stories that are no relationship whatsoever to the area they're supposed to be uh, supposed to be serving and so I do think they have to be genuinely local and I think we should require a limit on monopoly ownership of local authority uh, local papers not local authorities local papers and of course um, the same should apply on national papers we are consulting on how we'd bring this about consulting on what the structure of that process would be and uh, we'll obviously be developing policies on it but the principles behind it there has to be a much greater diversity of ownership and much greater local content for local papers and local influence on how they're developed. That's Jeremy Corbyn at the Alternative McTaggart lecture from the TV festival's live stream of his speech last month. Dave, Jez, do you, do you recognise that description of monopolies in, in local newspapers? I, I do increasingly, yes. Um, as I've said in a previous uh, podcast, you know, my my background was working for one of the the top three mm -hmm. uh, owners, uh, NewsQuest, and um, I noticed that they've um, recently bought up um, a smaller newspaper company in, in Cumbria where I worked, yeah. Cumbria Newspapers. So, pretty much own all the local newspapers in in that county. Um, also, um, you know, across the other areas where I've worked you know um, there's not much choice of where you get to work um, as mm. a journalist and you have to sort of fall in with the the ethos of those yeah. companies um, yeah. Trinity yeah. Mirror now reach of course yeah. uh, just expanding expanding yeah 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 I think yeah. you're right Jez it's uh, a very close-knit so to speak um, world of ownership uh, you know when I was a journalist it was somebody talked about a title and your immediate reaction was Oh yeah, NewsQuest. Oh yeah, Johnson. Mm -hmm, yes, mm. the big four, and everyone knew. Oh, don't you know? We talked about NewsQuest conditions. We talked about you know. I mean, I worked for Guardian, MBN Media Group, a very large group. And I think what's interesting now is the way that you know consolidation is taking place, mm. to the detriment of uh, local reporting. Yeah. Yes. And yeah. also, I guess, you know, one of the issues that quite often comes with that. So NewsQuest swallows up Cumbria newspapers, for example. They also take on the, the pension liabilities mm. of and very often these takeovers result in changes to the pension um, rights or or the, the pay rights of the journalists yeah. themselves. Now, that's one of the other th issues that Corbyn addressed in there, talking about low pay in, in local newspapers. How, how seriously should we take that now? I think very seriously uh, for two reasons. One, um, it's historic and it needs changing. Uh, and two, um, because of that low pay culture, we're not attracting. Perhaps no. we're not we're not being diverse enough in, in our you know pool of uh, people coming forward. You know, traditionally it's white middle class. Um, and certainly if you stick around anywhere in the provincial you know mm. uh, industry you're going to have to stick on low pay uh, unless you get into the nationals or the bbc's mm. it's it's been a perennial problem and uh, you know partly due to the fact that journalism was a craft and a trade uh, lots of historic uh, and it was you were often indentured or apprenticed in the early days you know certainly when i graduated and got my first job first few years in fact, for quite a long time, I was nowhere near the earning power of my friends, graduates who'd gone off to do accountancy, solicitors, travel agents, you know, it was, but of course we have the interesting job, but, but the, they sold the job as well. Okay, it's the best job in the world, but you just get low pay and mm. it's terrible conditions. Um, but how long can you keep doing that? We're, mm. we're in a system now where Graduates, students listening to this will be paying £9,000 a year, will be getting, coming up with huge debts. Would you want to then enter an industry which is competitive, mm. um, very low pay, 
in terms of you know comparison i've just had a graduate start uh, an ex-master student at a very renowned uh, news agency under twenty thousand mm-hmm. pounds uh you know it's more like a mcdonald's salary so some massive issues there to be addressed one um, of the of course corbyn in his speech one of the things that he said to to maybe to partly to address some of that stuff is, is a levy on the profits of the big beasts of the internet. Now, that's something that's been around in some form or other for a while. The National Union of Journalists lobbied for something along those lines back in the late 2000s, and that was when Jeremy Corbyn was the chair of the NUJ's parliamentary group. Um, it didn't get much traction outside of the Westminster committee rooms where we were mm. talking about it at that stage, but does it have any better traction now because of the state of the industry, do you think? I think um, I think it's something that needs to be looked at. Um, when you look at the um, sort of look at picking up what Dave was saying about about wages and that, you look at what the the workload that young reporters have to do now compared to what they used to do. They're having to do not just print; they're doing online, they're doing all the social media stuff, and yet um, wages have just stagnated. Um, so I, I think those ideas could be pursued i think it's something that would be welcomed in in the local uh, certainly in, in the uh, in the print media um i noticed that uh, in across europe um meps have just voted in favor of amendments to copyright laws yep. um to sort of um try and tackle the the big aggregators of news yep. like google and facebook as a way of maybe getting some money to to journalists i think also that's to to bring money not just to the um, media owners but also to journalists as well so i think there would certainly be it does uh, look like it's something that's coming down the pipe mm-hmm. in some shape or form doesn't it yes yeah, yeah. 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 I, mean, I mean i think that you know just as an example, the BBC, if you want to call it a levy, the local reporter and um, local democracy reporters, and uh, the BBC is something that money to help out, so to speak, provincial papers. I, I think, you know, despite its detractors, it seems to be working mm. um, to a degree. Um, there are now reporters out there covering council meetings uh, that weren't perhaps previously. Mm. Uh, I know uh, that the Media Reform Coalition they put a similar-ish type of uh, that, that's submission. Part, that's part of their submission yeah, to Cairn Cross, isn't that's it? Right. Yeah. So mm-hmm. uh, I think it's uh, maybe you know the stable door has been off for quite some time. It's a bit late, but I th- yeah, there are moves of thought, and I would welcome anything like that. Yeah. Now, I mean, Frances Cairn Cross herself said the review wasn't about preserving the status quo, but mm. about exploring ways in which we can ensure that consumers in ten years' time have access to high-quality journalism which meets their needs, it's delivered in a way they want, and supports democratic engagement. Um, we what we haven't had so far is any hints about what the review is likely to conclude. Mm. Um, but speaking to the media show on BBC Radio Four um, in August, Dame Francis did suggest that charitable status might be an option for some news outlets. This is a medium where the startup costs are very low. The costs of doing a major news investigation are very high, and one question is whether the sort of investigative journalism that we uh, have seen carried out by the big papers will continue. I think that we will need probably kinds of finance which we haven't yet experimented with much. We can't have straight philanthropy because the rules of governing charities would get in the way and it may be that we ought to think about that. And there are a few experiments, certainly one in Scotland, of a little news-gathering online operation run part-time by 
top Scottish journalists, which specialises in doing investigative journalism one story at a time. So there may well be ways in which the online world can deliver investigative journalism that is just as searching as what we have in paper at the moment. So that's Dame Frances Cairncross speaking on Radio 4. Now, alongside her expert panel, the DCMS also commissioned a report into the current state of journalism in the UK. It was published back in April by the consultants Mediatic with a kind of innocuous-sounding title of Recent Dynamics in the UK Press Market. It's almost 100 pages long, but it's probably the closest thing I've seen for some time to a thorough, fairly independent and dispassionate examination of where the economics of newspaper journalism are in the UK right now. And if I ruled the world, it would be compulsory reading for every one of our multimedia journalism students in the first couple of weeks of the term. Some of the headlines in there for you. Net circulation revenue for just over 1,000 local and regional newspapers across the UK was down by almost a half in 2017 from 2007, from £2.2 billion then to £1.7 billion last year. Or what about the stats that just 14% of 16 to 24-year-olds say they read newspapers at all? Or the fact that the number of frontline journalists has crashed pretty much in proportion to that collapse in revenue from 23,000 full-time jobs in 2007 to 17,000 jobs last year. Mediatic says the landscape is pretty stark. It is worth asking how well-equipped the newspaper industry is to reverse the current trends and become robustly sustainable. There are no signs of a reversal in the declines in newspaper sales, nor in the concomitant drop in both circulation and print advertising revenues. So, as I said, if if I ruled the world, that report would be compulsory reading for all our students. But Dave, Jez, if you ruled the world, what would you do to make a sustainable future for the press in the UK? Um, Jez, where would you start? Well, just picking up on on the headlines that you mentioned then, it's just really occurred to me um, and thinking about, um, you know, representing um, the needs of communities really around the country and reporting the news that doesn't get reported anywhere else and taking into account my own background in, in journalism, I'd, I'd want to see um, a newspaper in every town in, in the country, whether it's mm. print or certainly online, but something that's covering the smaller places around the country. Because there are places now that don't, you know, quite big places. I'm thinking of, for example, um, Congleton in Cheshire. Yeah. I don't think it has, um, it certainly doesn't have um, a major newspaper. Yeah, and hasn't um, had for some time. Some and time, Those no. kind of news vacuums are, are growing in number now yes, around the country. Exactly, you know, yeah. so yeah. communities aren't, aren't being uh, represented um, by, by the media, I don't think, to the degree that they used to be, anyway. Yeah. Yeah, Dave, what about you? Yeah, I think, you know, uh, I was watching an advert the other night for a bank uh, and the bank was turning up into this small town or village in, in a, you know, like a coach. We're bringing banking to you, but we're shutting down your local branch. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, you know, and I, I, it's a bit like the post office, isn't it? Um, bank goes a post office, then goes your bank. We're now seeing, you know, fewer and fewer newspapers. And it's not just, um, I, I agree, yes, with Jez, it'd be great to have every single town village covered by you know 
and newspaper, whether it's online or print. Um, but it's how that's staffed. I thought it's very mm. revealing that um, I was reading about the, the no- when the Novichok incident happened, and the Guardian did a piece which I thought was quite interesting with the, the local paper, mm. and uh, they were asking how it how it had been and what it was like reporting on such an international mm-hmm. story. And there was basically one twenty-two-year-old. Uh, Mm. graduate journalist with, with one reporter and you just think gosh imagine mm. that mm. you know when I started off there was eight or nine of us in the newsroom yeah. and we would have all been on that story um, now it's just one or two people in a, in a um, newsroom and that's not untypical so yeah. it's not just for presence it's for staffing it is Do, does that mean I mean Roy Greenslade in the Guardian said that the, the, the issue is that journalism's taken second place to profit profitability is that what's at that's stake? historic isn't it yeah. of course we you mm. know we were seen as uh, filling in the spaces between the adverts yeah. historically I know the NUJ you would pack back this up um after you know newspapers have been driven by the demands of shareholders 30 percent mm-hmm. returns mm-hmm. um cover prices in no way reflected i think what we had uh, and uh, we've let this slide really since the 60s mm-hmm. is people bought cheap news 50p 20p whatever it was on the basis that don't worry it's paid for by adverts mm-hmm. and and then suddenly people go well, I'm not going to buy a paper. Mm-hmm. Why should I pay £1.60 or something? So mm-hmm. we've not trained people to think about, actually, you should pay for news. Whereas if you look at Scandinavian countries, mm-hmm. uh, they have a culture, uh, uh, much will, much more willingness to pay for news. And I'm not sure how you get back from that. I mean, it's interesting that, you know, among 16 to 24-year-olds, for example, um, increasingly they are prepared to pay for, for music or for films, you know, through, mm. through their, their Spotify account or, 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 or um, Netflix or whatever it sure. is. And I, maybe it's some kind of cultural change that yeah. needs to happen yeah. so that 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 younger generation see news as as a commodity just like yeah. a, a, a tune. They're just so used to it being free, aren't they? That's, that's, they don't mm. see the value in... in buying it from one particular source, I think, because it's available everywhere. Yeah, I mean, going back to, to that clip that we heard earlier on from, from Dame Frances, she, she and, and others, I mean, the National Union of Journalists is also encouraging, uh, or did encourage people to contribute to the review with case studies of, of entirely new models of journalism. You know, mm. the, the ferret, um, which, which Dame Frances mentioned, and people I know in, in Scotland um, and have worked with in the past, um, they have a kind of crowdfunding model. Mm. Is that where we need to be looking, do you think? I think it's interesting, you know, looking at all these various uh, examples and, and, and uh, suggestions. Um, there was a suggestion that I, I hear quite a lot about funding for public interest journalism, which is fantastic. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I want every kind of journalism. Uh, and, and who decides what's public interest journalism? Uh, and I, I know that the, the idea you put, Pete, of, uh, of news organisations or, or being turned into charities, uh, and I know that anecdotally they find it very very difficult so uh, I don't think it comes without uh, certain problems um, one of the problems being political coverage you know a charity is mm. not allowed to be political Quite. and so your political coverage as a news organisation would be very very limited yeah. so I think these are all great ideas but um, they come with you know with a word of caution I, I quite like the crowdfunding idea and the ferrets um, but I think it, it, it will if, if it's going to be the future or one of the, the avenues that we pursue in the future, it will increasingly see journalists very much working as freelancers and then finding the right mm. platform yeah. to publish it. Because yeah, it's yeah. the only way to work, really. Yeah, which is uh, the, the way that the, the, the journalists on the, the ferret do exactly that. Mm. They, they 
contribute a, a portion of their time to the ferret, but they also earn income from other jobs that they yes, do. Yeah. 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 But, you know, you look at the rise of the hyperlocal website, and there are, you know, quite often they're, they're um, former journalists, staff journalists on newspapers who've set yeah, up... I can speak from yeah, personal yeah, experience of that, but, yeah. But making quite a good, successful business model in, mm. you know, in a, in a small town or a or a village or whatever, but covering that area very well and to quite a deep level, you know. Um, so I see that as being um, as, a, as a, a way forward as well. Yeah. You know. we, we could go on a long time yes, about all of this, um, and I'm sure we'll come back to this kind of story. The, the Cairn Cross uh, review, the report is due out sometime in the new year, perhaps February or mm -hmm. early spring or mm -hmm. something like that, and, and I'm sure we'll come back to that in later editions. Yeah. But that's it from uh, Bang to Rights for this week. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Pete. Thanks, Jez. Thanks, Pete. And, and do let us know if there are topics or issues from the lectures or from your own reading which you want us to cover in future editions. But in the meantime, thanks for listening. We'll speak to you soon.